Well, hello there. Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast and uh, this episode of Videodrome. Um, before we get started, we're going to do a quick programming note. As we discussed at the end of last week's podcast, Google Hangouts, the best part of YouTube, is going away. And we're still deciding internally whether and if we should keep the live format or if we'll just switch to uploading our discussion as edited videos. Uh, last week at the end of the podcast, we asked you if you had any preference. Uh, so as we're making that decision, if you'd like to weigh, weigh in, please let us know in the comments below. So on to uh, that programming note out of the way, on to the actual discussion tonight. Tonight, we are going to be absorbed into our screens as we analyze David Cronenberg's 1983 cult classic, Videodrome. Uh, critically acclaimed on its release, it actually bombed at the box office before picking up a cult following, and now it is considered one of Cronenberg's best, not a history of violence. Uh, it follows Max, the network exec at a small television station who discovers Videodrome, a service that purportedly screens nothing but plotless sex and violence, basically today's reality TV. And as Videodrome's manipulative and hypnotic qualities lay themselves bare, Max is sucked into a violent world where his mind is not necessarily his own. So for the next two spoiler-filled hours, we will be talking about television as a medium, sex and violence on TV, body horror, non-traditional sexuality, and much more. Basically, we're going to play a drinking game where we drink every time we one of us says Marshall McLuhan's name. So there you go. Um, but this was Shayra's movie. Uh, Shayra chose this movie. What what made you choose this film? What what makes it scary to you? Why do you think that this is something that we should be discussing, especially in 2019? What what about it really really speaks to you? So Cronenberg is is one of my favorites. Um, you can always tell his style just by looking at his films. The effects are always very exciting to look at, um, and also the drama was always there you know something fucked up is gonna happen even if it starts out slow and watch how his work has evolved over time um and this one i guess didn't have as much of a following at first i think some people may have uh seen it as weird maybe it was a little ahead of its time i don't i'm not sure um maybe it's because the budget was really low um i know that during the time that this was made in canada uh, basically they had a small budget that was put out by Canada. Um, originally people had to come up with their own money to make their films in Canada. And, um, one of Cronenberg's first, he put forth money for this, but they finally talked the country into, uh, you know, putting some funds into creating art and film. And this was one of the tryouts <laughs> for it. And it might've, uh, not been exactly done correctly. First off, they put it in a time frame that they had to get it done in a certain amount of time, that it had to be done in a certain uh, amount of money. And a lot of the hindrances may have caused stuff to get rushed and not be done to perfection, especially since uh, they, there were effects that were really complicated. They somehow figured it out, but it took a while to get there. So I think there were some problems 
that occurred, but it's still just so beautiful how it is pieced together. It messes with your mind. It throws philosophy out there. Uh, it has very disturbing imagery, beautiful people to look at going through really grotesque things. Um, I was really excited about talking about this film with Garrett because at one point in time we discussed uh, vagina and vulva imagery in other locations and we have the stomach vulva. So I, I'm really excited to talk to Garrett about that. Um, but I, I chose this film just because it's low budget indie weirdness that just defined an entire genre and made a lot of people, it's Cronenberg is like an adjective now, like you Cronenberg something. And this is really where that got to that place. And, and the makeup effects people are legendary now. You know, these are people that have made tons of, the, the guy who uh, did the special effects, he invented the, the makeup uh, category, or he was the first to get the makeup category Academy Award. So th this is some exciting stuff behind this film. Um, and, and I can't wait to talk about Cronenberg. I know most people like Cronenberg, so um, it'll be fun to see what the chat has to say about it as well. But I really just want to discuss it. I really think that's what it boils down to. I want to discuss this because it's weird and it's odd and fun and messed up. So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think um, as we sort of jump into this discussion, uh, you know, it's it's sort of production problems notwithstanding. And I, I still think the film has, I, I'm more interested in what the film's saying than um, its actual filmmaking. I, I If we look at my notes, I actually have very few uh, notes about the actual filmmaking and more about what this film is saying. Um, and I think I, you know, what I struggle with uh, as I analyze this film is is the protagonist's manipulability. Um, he starts off with some unsavory goals. We're not really able to emphasize empathize with him too much, and then he's manipulative, ma manipulated first by the Videodrome, then by Convex, the character, then by Oblivion's daughter, then by Nikki, ultimately by Nikki. And usually, a character that makes that few decisions—that uh, few decisions—would make me blame the film for not having a dynamic protagonist. But if the point of the movie is that TV manipulates the shit out of us, then doesn't it make sense to have an easily manipulative character or manipulatable character? And so, I think that a lot of what this film has to say as is is about the medium of television and television's effects. So, like, what? What do you what do you think about um, Max's manipulability? Uh, that's a really hard word to say, and uh, and and how that sort of reflects on the overall themes of the film. What do you guys think about that? Well, it it, it was discussed in the film that anyone can be affected by that medium. Everyone can be affected by that medium, and that's why they have such a piece of shit asshole, you know, garbage person. Uh, who usually is the manipulator, who's the CEO of a shitty freaking industry uh, that exploits others and uses disgusting uh, video footage to get views, to get money. Um, having someone like that even be able to be manipulated by Videodrome was the reason why he was chosen by them. And they even say that that's why he's chosen. And even his hacker guy, who was a plant, says to him, uh, yeah, I've never watched it <laughs> for good reason. So I think it was to show how much that medium does affect our brains, no matter who we are, 
no matter what we know, no matter how much we might feel like we are shielded against these, the strength of these mediums, they still will rewire your brain and um, make you think differently and see things differently than others. I think, I think if that was the intention, then an opportunity was missed because they could have framed him as being incredibly, uh, you know, sort of, of strong-willed and, and, and uh, 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 self-possessed at the beginning of the film, and then have him slowly sort of lose his capacity for self-control. But instead, yeah, he starts off being an asshole and being aggressive, and yeah, he just goes after what he wants, which kind of gives you a hint of that. But I, I think you know the, the last clearly aggressive thing he does, sort of assertive thing he does, is ask Debbie Harry out for a drink, um, and that happens fairly early on. There isn't really a gradual erosion. So if, if that was the intention, then I, I would have liked that to have been, I think, a little bit more clear. Antonio, what do you think? Well, um, honestly, I thought that it kind of, Jared makes a good point, and so now I'm kind of reconsidering my initial impression, but my, my initial impression was uh, sort of to Shayra's point, but a little bit on, uh, on a deeper level, I think, more to um, almost a, a point made about determinism in general. You know, the idea that the idea that we are ultimately the product of our environmental influences and that a sufficiently strong environmental influence can be irresistible and can completely transform our reality. I think ultimately that's that's a lot of the point that's being made here. But the other aspect, I think, is that the the protagonist is deliberately written as a villain basically, as, as a character that in another movie, in any other setting, would be a villainous character. And so I think given that, it, it, I think this is intended to pull us emotionally away from the protagonist and make us relate to, relate to him a little bit more dispassionately than perhaps we otherwise might be inclined to. And so we, we cast ourselves more in it as observers than as participants, like with his struggle, so to speak. And so, and of course, that's an interesting meta-commentary if you think about it, because obviously the movie is about the effects of watching as an observer, watching something as an observer and soaking these things up passively. What is the effect on you? And so it actually kind of casts the audience in that same role um, by the way that it depicts the protagonist, I think. Yeah, Debbie Harry's character even mentions like, oh, free will, you think that's a thing? <laughs> that's hilarious. Like, that's not how the world works. And um, so they do definitely hint, hint at determinism. But I definitely got rubber vibes from this film where you have this analysis of us we are the bad guys, honestly. We are the ones who are causing this sex and violence to even occur. Because without the audience, this wouldn't even be made. There would be no nobody to watch it, and it wouldn't occur. So we are passive, uh, active, involved people in this insanity, and it's it's it, it's making us consider what we consume, what we watch, what we decide to be around. I, I hate to gainsay it twice in a row, but I, again, I have to say, I hope that's not what's going on, because if it is, then it, it's, it comes across a problem I have with a lot of films uh, when the film lectures you for enjoying it. Uh, um, this is a, a criticism that, uh, that Noah and I were talking about, about uh, funny games, you know, where it, you know, it, it was trying to sort of act as if the film was superior to the people who are viewing it because the film isn't enjoying itself, so you shouldn't be enjoying it either. And that's 
kind of uh, yeah. I don't, I don't. I I don't care to be to be lectured like that by a film. Uh, but you know, again, maybe other people not so much. So, so what for you, Garrett? What's the overall? Uh, thesis of the film because I'm I'm seeing a lot of the things that Antonio and Shayra are saying and so I it, like if you're running counter to that I'd like to sort of explore that point of view. Well, okay, there's a great invitation right there. Um, well, first off, let me, let me try to address more directly my th my thoughts. Or, on wait, what, what do you mean a great an invitation? I missed you there. What do you mean by that? Uh, um, well, Did I sound like I, James I, Woods for a moment? No, I wanted to to talk about my my, my sort of what I think the thesis of the film is, but I was going to hold that off for later. Oh, okay. Um, oh, but first, right, look, really well, quickly, let me address your your point. I I don't have a problem at all one way or the other uh, with James Woods's character being sort of easily manipulable. I, I know that's a criticism that you had and you have of many films but i to me it, 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 it that's just a technique a character technique like any other it depends on what's done with it and how it's done does it make sense for the character some human beings are kind of passive some human beings are just uh, go wherever the the winds may take them and sometimes interesting stories can be told about such characters and i think this this is one such such film for the most part i so i didn't really have a problem with his passivity i'm not sure it's necessarily making a comment on how manipulable we are um but you know, at the same time, I don't find that that interpretation to be to be uh, all that radical or all that off base. But I think one of the problems I have with the film uh, is that I think there's two separate theses going on, uh, and the first one is more in focus in the first half of the film, and it's almost completely dropped in the second half of the film. In the first half of the film, this is about it, 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 sex and violence and how it degrades us and how we uh, uh, sort of become these sort of ravenous consumers that are desensitized to everything. Um, similar, I think, in a lot of ways, if you saw, ever saw the film 8mm, I think that, that, that that's a film that the first half of this really resonated with me for. But almost all the sex, at least, disappears in the second half. In uh, the second half, it stops being about sex. You know, the violence is still there, but it's not even about televised violence anymore. Um, it's about fantasy violence, uh, which obviously, you know, there's a, there's a natural segue connection there. But again, the, but the, the thesis of the second half of the film is more about questioning the nature of reality. You know, how do we uh, how do we understand what is real? We get sort of wrapped up in our own narratives, our own uh, thought bubbles, our own perspectives on things. We're not sure if anything that's happening in the second half of the film is really real. Is he really transforming into a monster with a hand? and the vagina in his chest or is it this part of a diluted fantasy um you know after he straps on the helmet and he's having his his sort of hallucinations recorded you know is everything after that just part of the hallucination you know again these are all interesting things to explore but i just find it to be kind of dis completely disconnected from the thesis in the first half of the film uh so while i like both of those theses both of those things are worth exploring i kind of wish that they were integrated better that they were connected better and they made more of a sort of a coherent whole rather than what i felt like two very distinct different ideas that were just sort of slotted into each other back to back i think i would actually challenge that that view of the film Garrett, um, because uh, well, the way I saw it was that the the theme of sex and violence is prevalent through the entire movie. Um, because, of course, remember, if you remember, they explicitly say at one point, the video drum signal doesn't work unless you're broadcasting it through something that is extremely, you know, sexual plus violent. Um, but for me, it wasn't so much that the first half of the movie was about, you know, sex and violence and its effects, and the second half wasn't. So much as that in the second half of the movie, the sex and violence just came into the out, out off the screen into the into the 
you know, main room of the picture because, you know, we see, uh, you know, the whole scene with the gun fusing and, you know, he goes and kills a bunch of people. That's obviously extremely violent. And then as far as the sexuality, there's all kinds of like, you know, vaginas opening up in the dude and all this kind of stuff. So for me, the, the, the themes are consistent. It's just that they step off the backdrop and onto the stage in the second half of the movie. I, and honestly, like, there was some violent parts too that uh, may not have seemed sexual, but I definitely read them as sexual. For instance, when he's like whipping and you hear the girl moaning and stuff like that, um, it, it's not necessarily that he's having sex with somebody, but there's something sexual occurring. Unless we're we're gonna go down the Bill Clinton road and be like, kind of not have sexual relations and in adjust what sex can be, but. I, I would think that like whipping a girl and having her moan would be, you know, a form of sexuality, especially since she gets off on these kinds of things. And she even like put the cigarette out on her boob and, you know, uh, obviously gets off on that pain and pain and pleasure have similar, you know, connectors in our brain. Uh, this is why sex and violence tend to be interconnected in our mediums that we are media that we put out um you'll see sex and violence tend to always come together um so it's it's hard to find what what is the line between sex and violence at a certain point you know sometimes they interweave yeah certainly they can um and the film definitely nods to that you know the, the, there's that scene uh you know in in which you know, debbie harry or, or james wood says it's not exactly sex and uh, uh you know debbie harry says says who um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't mean to suggest that sex has to be sort of, you know, vanilla or anything along those lines, but the, 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 the things you mentioned, her, the, her putting the cigarette out on her boob and stuff like that, that, and I'm pretty sure that happens in the first half. And the, the, again, the, what, again, if the, if the intention was to say that violence and sex are so inextricably linked that any form of violence at all, including someone, uh, you know, taking a gun and shooting someone on a stage, is sort of sexual then i think that the again an opportunity was missed there, there there you know if james woods had come up and put, like put the gun in the guy's mouth or something like that that could have been a way of of conveying that sort of uh, conflation of sex and violence but instead it looks just kind of like an assassination the trippy thing is the that his hand is turned into a gun that's the fantastical thing about it and there's nothing particularly sexual about that. Again, yeah, obviously the, the the chest vagina has has a sort of running thing. But notice what happens to it at the end, right? You know, it, it he he uses it to cut off the guy's hand and replace it with a grenade uh, that blows up and kills him. And so, yeah, and I suppose that could be something like, yeah, uh, sex is dangerous and leads to you blowing up or something like that. But instead, it seemed to me to be just kind of, uh, yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to go down a, a weird path and, I, and you guys can agree or disagree. But um, I know George Carlin has made jokes about this, but I've also uh, there's a lot of music the past few decades that have hinted at this uh, guns and and bullets and bombs are very phallic. They do represent your dick. And here we are. <laughs> so like um, a lot of like songs will be talking about guns, but really what they're talking about is their love gun, if you will. And even as you see when he he, you know, vulva appear on his stomach, he puts the gun in there and it's very sexual. It's like a penis. And so I've viewed the, the gun as a kind of penis. Um, 
that that is now interconnected with him when he pulls it out and it like becomes a part of him it, but it's also a form of cancer almost it's it could be related to cancer it could be related to his penis but um i have heard a lot of people try to say that guns and violence are phallicy and uh very much like a dick measuring contest um when used so i i don't know if you guys saw that that way but that's kind of how i viewed the gun I, I can see it that way, but I also, it seems to me to be kind of, if that's the case, it's lazy, right? I mean, guns show up in literally thousands of movies. If all of them are making commentaries about the nature of sex, then it's pretty pedestrian and pretty boring that way. Yeah, but it doesn't. He he takes it and he like rubs it along the lips of the vulva and then it like shoves it into it. Like it seems very, it seems to me very much like a, a penis. So. Yeah, definitely. No, I, mean, I think that's clearly the intention. But I also think that that's right about at the turning point. I think that's right about halfway through the film when that scene occurs. And it, again, it's it's from that point onward that I think that the 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 sex violence sort of starts to take a back seat to the is this real or is this uh, uh, not real uh, as a theme. We're getting comments in the chat about uh, sex and violence. Steve says, maybe they're saying media numbs us and it takes extreme sex and especially violence to cut through that. Dan agrees saying, that was my reading of the film. We become increasingly numb to sex and violence on screen and we need to keep ratcheting up to greater and greater extremes. This is an argument that gets made in popular culture all the time, or at least popular cultural studies, whether or not sex and violence in media either works as a sort of valve release effect. That is, I watch sex and violence and now I don't wanna do sex and violence out in the world, or I watch sex and violence and I think it's so cool that I wanna go do sex and violence out in the world. Um, these are, competing theories that uh, that have I, I you know the first time I heard these these theories were um, after the Columbine shooting in which it was revealed that they uh, they were playing first person shooter games and that was uh, that was then well it's clearly the video game's fault and also Marilyn Manson's fault and on and on but at the same time we've get James Woods's character in this film making the the uh, making the argument that no, in fact, by watching it, that means that I'm not gonna wanna do it. Like, how does that, uh, what do you think uh, Videodrome is saying? Wh what side of that that coin do you think Videodrome is on? And, and what are your thoughts about those theories? I know, uh, Garrett, you seem to uh, wanna jump in on that real quick there, so. Okay. Oh, well, no, you didn't. Your your microphone is off, so I assumed you did. But I guess uh, you, then you gave me this look of like, what? Yeah, no, I mean, I wasn't jumping at it, but since you called me out, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, Sorry, sure. I didn't on, on, the, on the on the social science here, I think there's just an overwhelming amount of evidence to suggest that there's no causal relationship at all between consuming violent media and actually engaging in violence. Uh, this is an idea that dates back as far as Plato. And a tremendous amount of evidence suggests that the, the relationship, if it exists at all, is incredibly minimal and more likelihood is, is purely coincidental. So don't feel bad about playing your violent video games or listening to Marilyn Manson or rap lyrics or whatever. It's not going to make you a sociopath. Um, uh, that having been said, uh, I think Videodrome is, is certainly sort of inviting us to sort of explore uh, this question. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily taking a stand on it in part because, as I say, a big question ends up being is at, at the end of the film is, is any of this even real 
or is it all just a fantasy? Because if it's all just a fantasy, then none of the violence is real and none of it's particularly consequential. Um, uh, and again, I don't think that's that that's a, a bad thing necessarily. Uh, it, it is sort of worth uh, you know uh, asking if you know if the, the you know the, the the voyeurism that we're experiencing as we watch all the sex and this violence, if it all I mean after all in the literal sense it is of course all fictional. It's not really happening. It's a film. We all know this as members of the audience. Uh, but then it can sort of you know get meta on that level and say that, that even the violence within the world of the film isn't really happening. It's all just part of the very vivid hallucination that James Woods is having. Um, and at the end, does it really matter? Well, let's take a second and just to do a check for as as far as whether what 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 do you guys what did you guys ta have as far as that take you know how much of that how much of what happens in the latter half of the film do you see as having actually happened versus been being hallucinatory for me for example I think he actually did kill all the people that he apparently killed I think that it, you know the gun in his hand was in his hand he just it wasn't actually he wasn't actually turning into a monster but he was actually going around and killing all these people um, and I, I think that's the most obvious reading of the film um, maybe that's not the intended reading, but that certainly, I think, is what, what comes off the most clearly on just a plain viewing. And that would almost indicate, I agree with you, Antonio, and that would almost indicate that watching sex and violence would cause one to be uh, sexual and violent. It, it, like, if you take uh, what happens at the end as part of an actual reality of the movie, then that means, at least for me, that the, uh, the, the, logical interpretive conclusion is that the film is saying that watching sex and violence uh, you know encourages people to be sex and violent uh, sexual and violent um running counter to both the sociological research and counter to marshall McLuhan's take a drink um Marshall McLuhan's thesis that say that uh, that that says that actually the content is completely irrelevant. Uh, he says that just watching the medium in and of itself is is uh, that's the message. It's not it, it's it's irrelevant whether you're watching children's programming or a snuff film, um, which I I. I I shudder to think what his child's, uh, what his children's upbringing was like. <laughs> Teddy, we want to watch Sesame Street. No, here is Blue Velvet instead. Why not? Um, <laughs> you know, like, here's the thing. You know, I've raised my daughter when she was very little. Uh, started her out watching uh, Night of the Living Dead and, and let her watch a lot of very violent and, and questionable material that most people consider questionable. And she's an upstanding citizen. She's very functional. Uh, you know, it... it maybe doesn't have anything to do with that but i didn't read that in the film so much um, because he was already inundated with that material constantly and it didn't affect him until it was video drum that got in his head which they even said was a kind of a bug almost like a, an infection that got spread to him and um and he spread it to somebody else when he has a sexual encounter with her he exposes her to the same exact uh thing and and she's now somehow a part of the whole uh, problem too. So I, I almost feel like they were being honest with Marshall's, Marshall McLuhan, you can go ahead and drink, <laughs> his, his views about how it's the medium that is the thing that rewires how we think. And so video drama is supposed to be a new form of medium. Yes, it, it did have television aspects, but I think it was hinting at the fact that I think people knew 
there was new technologies on the way. We didn't know about the internet so much. We didn't know about video games so much, but we could see where it was kind of going around this time, right? This is when a lot of these discussions were happening. And I think they knew that eventually their darn children were gonna have computers in their face all day. Um, and so I, they didn't know exactly what it was going to be. I think they had hinted at this idea of might be holograms or some other kind of thing. And in this film, I think it just, he got sucked into the program, uh, as, as a kind of metaphor of becoming a part of that medium. But I think the issue is when we are constantly inundated with flickering lights on our screens, this is how we learn now. This is how we're educating our children. Uh, we, we play videos of Bill Nye, the science guy in our classes. Um, almost all professors I've ever seen play YouTube videos to describe certain like little elements of things. I'll put up a YouTube video that'll quickly explain something and maybe a five minute little video and discuss. We are constantly inundated with flickering lights telling us how to think, what to think. And is this a problem that this is how we need to learn things now? And and it was argued back in the day that reading books was bad for our brains. You know, it used to be, oh, we're supposed to sit around and talk to each other. What happened to talking to each other? And there are tons of articles from people in the past who were like, books are destroying our young people's brains. <laughs> so it's just another medium, right? Yeah, and you know, Socrates specifically argues that the invention of writing was a terrible thing for human beings because it makes us, uh, you know, we, we start offloading things onto the page and we, rather than holding them in our own heads. Um, so yeah, there's technophobia going way back in, in Western civilization. I do want to be clear on, on what I was saying about the social science research. It's uh, the, the research does not say that consuming these things doesn't have an effect on you. It definitely has an effect on you. It transforms you in multiple ways. What I mean when I say it doesn't have an effect, it, it, it doesn't turn you into a violent sociopath. It doesn't make you more likely to actually go out and shoot someone or rape someone or something like that. That's, that's where the disconnect is. Right. right. And I that's important to talk about, right? Like, this is why it's so important to discuss the medium, right? That's that's what this whole entire discussion is really about. Is the medium bad or is it the content that's bad? And it doesn't matter that it's sex and violence. The only reason why we would use sex and violence in a story like this is because that's the thing that everybody thinks is really naughty and taboo. Um, but let's say it was something that was more mundane, like, you know, different kinds of flowers and plants. Is it still okay to sit your kid in front of a TV all day if they're learning about flowers and plants all day? Or is it probably bad for them to sit in front of a television screen all day long? So despite the content, is it the medium that's actually hurting and harming us or possibly rewiring our brains in a negative way or possibly causing us to get uh, brainwashed or manipulated in some way that we wouldn't normally be manipulated into? And this can easily be argued today we have a problem of different websites telling us news and a lot of it's biased. A lot of it is questionable. And then now certain social media sites are trying to cut off some of these people that are uh, obviously manipulating the masses or hurting or harming us and giving misinformation. Is this a problem of free speech or is this a problem of, Hey, maybe this needs to be regulated. And this is a huge debate going on right now. This is probably something they felt coming on. This is before the 24-hour news cycle hit. You know, then we have movies like Network and other types of films, you know, trying to, like, hey, this might get scary, guys. Like, we might just get absorbed into uh, marketing war. Like, that could be dangerous, you know? Like, it, it's, 
what, what kind of path are we going down as a society? Is this going to change us? Is this going to make us monsters? Is this a cancer on society? Um, and, and who's in control of it all? Who's puppeting this all? It's, I think it's a legit thing to concern ourselves with, but is it that dangerous of a thing or is it just old people being very afraid of new tech? Right, and, that, and that's what I think, again, one of the things I really liked about the movie is I think it avoids making the lazy criticism of television, which is just, oh, it's gonna rot your brains. I mean, there's a there's a, a, a surface reading of that that just views any kind of technology uh, as, as sort of brainwashing. But but I think that one of the things, again, like I said, I really like the film, I think handles it with a lot more subtlety and complexity than that. Uh, um, it isn't just taking the position, the, 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 the blanket idea that television is bad for you or that sex and violence is bad for you. Um, it is sort of, you know, deliberately sort of asking you to ask much more complicated questions about the 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 the, the nature of, of media and consumption and fantasy and and, and reality. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I sometimes wonder if Megan, if I'd seen it on a different day or in a different year and a different time, if maybe I would have saw, seen it as being that sort of moralistic as just trying to sort of wag its finger at you for, for enjoying this stuff. Um, uh, and if I did see it that way, then I don't think I would have liked it anywhere near as much, but I, I I'm, I'm glad that, that, that I think my reading of the film is, is it's much more uh, nuanced and sophisticated than that. Yeah, Garrett, um, I would have to agree with you. My reading of the film definitely isn't that it's a it's a blanket critique of technology um, because the, the film takes pains to emphasize. Now, I do think that the film makes that makes that wrongheaded commentary that if you're exposed to more sex and violence in the media, you're more likely to absorb it from the media. I do think that that is a point that the film tries to make because the James Woods character explicitly at the beginning of the movie starts out by offering the notion that this is just an outlet, that you know people watching it are the, are the thing that prevents it from happening in real life. He explicitly offers this argument early on in the movie and of course by the end of the movie it's heavily implied, if not outright stated, that he's actually going out into the real world and committing a bunch of violence as a result of the stuff that he's seen on TV. So I do think it is making that point. Um, however, I don't think that it is making a blanket critique of media in general or of the televised media in general because the film takes pains to, to ground all of the crazy shit that happens specifically in extreme images in in these things that people that people who have become desensitized to the standard forms of media are craving more extreme forms and and so i think that ultimately the message of the movie is an anti-hedonic message it's a cautionary tale that you know television has all kinds of interesting potential it has the ability to to you know transmit messages from people who are no longer alive etc and the movie does make some really interesting and kind of prescient uh statements about technology one of which one of which is that media will cause us to have a meta identity that is specific to specific media and that will have things like screen names as presaged by like brian oblivion um but ultimately i think that the message of the film is an anti-hedonic one where it where the idea is that that if we just go with what feels good to put on the screen we're going to eventually descend into videodrome and if that's the case, then I think it's a spiritual cousin to Hellraiser, which I think carries the exact same message about overdoing it with the hedonism. Yeah, it could be. I don't know. Like the the thing that uh, was weird to me was that he didn't have any of the major issues that came to be in the second half of the film until 
this living, breathing VHS tape was shoved into his body via the, I cannot say it, vagina riptata. Is that, <laughs> I don't know what you call it. I wish I knew more about it. I do want to go into that a little bit with you, Garrett, um, because I know there's other films that go down these paths. But it, it was like he was being reprogrammed and that this was being put into him. So I'm wondering if he didn't have that shoved in him, would any of that stuff have happened? Or was it his exposure? Because it seemed like the VHS was really the the thing that did did him in. That's interesting. I would love to go back and rewatch it now because I I always pegged it at the scene when he puts the, the the machine on his head, which is supposed to record his hallucinations. That that to me, I thought was the tipping point where everything after this is is up for grabs. It may not be real, but you might be right, or I might agree with you if I watch it a second time. Maybe maybe that is the point when when the when the scales really tip. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how you guys read it, but that that seemed, first of all, very rapey, uh, and but also um, kind of made me think of the idea that when someone invades you that way and messes with you that way, that it can change who you are. They can make you completely become something you don't even want to be. And if you notice in the film, he doesn't seem to want to do these things. It's like it's happening and he can't control it. And that's I think what really adds to the horror for me, the idea that your body, you can't control it. And I know they've they've done a lot of really cool films since then that have had this idea of like a robot controlling you and, and doing things for you. But it's this is truly horrifying to me, this idea that um, this violent thing gets stuck inside of you and stuck to you and starts just killing indiscriminately and you really don't have any control over it. That's horrifying, you know? where where is your ability to choose and is and then as the film hints at does anyone ever really choose uh it's that's horrifying i don't like determinism it scares me and i know it's a thing but it's still very frightening the idea of it is is scary to me so maybe that's where and and we've gone back to this like in a uh, the body snatchers films and all this the idea that somebody is taking control of you and you can't you know make choices anymore is horrifying to me but then i know that maybe i'm not making choices or what is a choice and, and then it you go down a rabbit hole of insanity for me like i'm sorry <laughs> it just scares the crap out of me so i go ah am i am i choosing to do this or is it predetermined that i was going to do this ah I, I do think a lot of the horror of the movie comes from determinism. And I think that here's where it's probably relevant to place the movie historically, right? So this is a movie that came out in 1983, if I remember correctly. And um, the, the two things that, that you can note about media in 1983 is 1983 is right when the drug crisis is starting to get a lot of media attention. And 1983 is also about a half generation into the media landscape post Hayes Code type stuff, which we, of course, we were discussing in our Rear Window broadcast a few weeks ago, if you guys remember. Um, and so there's a moral panic that occurs in the 1980s about the dissolution of the 60s and 70s, and that's including that includes in media. You know, in the 70s, there were a lot of exploitation type movies and there's the rise of the porn theater and all kinds of other stuff like that and you can clearly see these anxieties being expressed in videodrome through the medium of videodrome um 
And then the other thing is, of course, you can see the notion, the, the, the horror of addiction being really the anxiety of that also being really powerfully expressed in Videodrome with this idea that that makes media kind of an analog to drugs, you know, that if you that if you saturate yourself with a hard enough media, then you're going to become addicted to it and spiral down into this on point where you will not, no longer be able to control your own reality and you'll end up doing horrible criminal things. So it is very much a product of its time in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing, Antonio. I almost thought that its morality and that its ethics were, were rooted in early 1980s. And uh, I mean, I think you see I mean, going back to our discussion about media, I mean, really what we're talking about is the difference between hot and cold media, which is Marshall McLuhan. Um, but I, I also about that, that the stomach vagina, I mean, that gets fucked with literally fucked with two things, a gun and a videotape. And if there's what is more 1980s morality than violence is going to fuck you and the idiot box is going to fuck you uh like these are clear it's it's almost as though the images were too on point um at almost too uh too heavily manipulatable uh or not too heavily manipulatable as though the the film was basically you know, pounding in these two ideas that, you know, violence and, and the idiot box are the things that are going to fuck you over and turn you into this rabid uh, monster. So you should just say no. Now, it's also worth remembering really quickly that VHS tapes at the time were actually fairly novel technology. I mean, you know, people were familiar with them, of course, but I, I think by 1983, they weren't quite in like every home in America the way they would be by the late 80s. Um, and so for, you know, for obviously as a filmmaker, someone who's interested in film uh, and interested in, in, in the technology, he jumped on it and he pulled kind of like a, I think it's sort of like a Stephen King thing, right, where he found a commonplace objects and transformed it into something kind of horrifying. Well, I think also um, there is something kind of sexy about the VHS tape, right? Um, and and something kind of you know mysterious about it. There was the I don't know when this popped up, but I know that at some point in time in my childhood it popped up when you'd go to the movie store. First off, you're looking at VHS, like objectifying the covers, figuring out which film you're going to watch with your family. Everybody went on the weekends. Like you'd see everybody from your school. Everybody would be looking for movies, and there was always that like secret area with the like little beads you know curtain and then there was like the ooh, naughty vhs like vhs was kind of sexy back in the 80s um it probably was even sexier in the early 80s when it was more rare and uh you know ooh, he has a vhs tape he must have some cash he and he could play it in his house like she's putting it into the slot like yeah let's watch it it's it, there was probably something sexy about vhs that now we look back on and we're like what? <laughs> but I guess reflecting from my childhood, I remember the importance of going and looking at VHS. You know, I don't know what your guys' childhood was like, but I remember it was an exciting time. I've never thought. And the only one that sexualizes a VHS. Okay. No, I am. Yes, you are, because I literally have never thought of a VHS in the way a movie has made me think of a VHS tape. Uh, the, the, My first porno I've ever saw was on a VHS tape. So. Well, yeah, yeah. 
never that's why the internet happens um but uh yeah i mean there's and as antonio points out in our, our group chat it's a it's a throbbing flesh vhs that gets inserted i mean i guess what does that mean that now we watch movies on dvds and then it's a tray and we just sled it in and then let the tray go in like does that mean that the dvd is giving consents whereas the vhs were just fucking the the vcr i mean i've never thought of this shit before but apparently you are literally the only person i know who still watches movies on dvd um <laughs> yeah well there you go because i because i like consent garrett that's why okay i don't just like streaming things which brings up a different level of kink all right that's not that's not my my thing i so basically I what he's saying is digital is taking away the the sexiness of watching a film <laughs> at home the kids these days will never understand the horror of having to fast forward through the talky parts of the porno Right. These dark kids these days. Remember when? <laughs> remember when you had to look at a porn picture and it would take forever to load just her eyes and then her nose. <laughs> oh, poor kids these days. They have to. Uh, they never find out whether she paid for the pizza or not. Never know. Um, these are. This is actually to a more serious point, though. This is. Yeah. These are actually really good. Really good underlines of the fact that um, that technology. Um, the, the particulars of the technology have a really powerful shaping effect on our experience. And I think that this is actually one of the points that the movie makes that isn't kind of mired in a silly sort of 80s morality is that is that um, there is a radical shift in the way that technology causes us to relate to one another. And this is true of media, but of course you can walk this back to all kinds of other technologies. You can walk this back in, in terms of uh, arms race and ask yourself how wars are conducted differently as a result of, of technology. You can, you can walk this back in all kinds of different, different respects. Um, but, you know, obviously here we're talking about media specifically, but uh, there's a couple elements of it, you know, like there's that, there's the abstraction of identity, you know, as I pre previously mentioned, it, it sort of presages the screen name, you know, Brian Oblivion explicitly uh, describes that he has given himself a media name as a that, that occupies sort of a meta space that screens his real identity away from from his media identity and then another really interesting point that that the that it makes is that media permits us to communicate with each other through it, it allows us to simulate discourse where discourse doesn't actually necessarily take place. For example, and again, Brian Oblivion, he submits everything via tape. So none of nothing that he's actually saying is actually scripted to you know, address you know, the war in Sudan or whatever it is that he's on TV addressing, supposedly. It's all just prescripted. But nobody catches on to this fact. Everyone thinks he's still alive. And it's because we have, it's because the technology has, has the, the fact that his, presence is delivered via tape rather than in person permits this abstraction of his identity to the point where he can have been dead for months and he's still regularly making tv appearances and making contributions to the popular culture and no one has caught on to the fact that the actual person is dead so this okay. is the original deep fake That's that's what this is. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. Nice. nice. This is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I am actually not here. I've been dead for another for 
for at least three years. Um, I opened up a newspaper to prove that that's that's true or not, but newspapers don't exist anymore. So, okay, so I, I think this is probably a good place for me to bring up. Uh, uh, we've been talking a lot um, about Marshall McLuhan, but I think there's another intellectual here that's worth touching base on, and that's Jean Baudrillard um, and and his concept of hyper reality. Uh, which in short is this notion that, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it becomes impossible for consciousness to distinguish reality from simulation of reality. Um, uh, and his sort of most famous claim, uh, which often gets misunderstood, is the idea he said he has a book called The, uh, the, the Iraq War Never Took Place. And at face value, that sounds like conspiracy theory bullshit. But what he means is that when people think about the Iraq war, they think about what they saw on television. And what they saw on television was nothing at all like the real event. But the real event was only experienced by a fairly small number of people, and they can't really compare notes on it very effectively. And they, they don't have sort of the, the platform that would be necessary to disabuse people of the illusion. And even if they had the platform, people wouldn't believe them anyway. So when uh, the Iraq war, as it exists in the popular imagination, is something that never actually took place. It's instead a fantasy. Uh, and I think that there's an awful lot of that theme of hyper-reality and simula and simulacra going on, especially, as I've mentioned, in the second half of this film. Uh, and uh, although and, you know, the, the whole bit about yeah, Brian Oblivion never showing up on TV except on TV um, and all the, the tapes, as you're mentioning, Antonio, I thought that that was a particularly sort of brilliant little twist. I love that when that when that reveal dropped. Um, but I want to sort of ask you guys what you think about this, you know, it, it, uh, both in terms of, of, of the film's commentary on the notion of hyper-reality, uh, that, that, te that television is more real than real, if you will, um, and also sort of the more abstract notion, is this something that concerns you? Is, is, are you afraid about the idea of, we mentioned deep fakes or fake news in general, fake news being more real than real, as it were? Uh, so I just want to open up the floor to see what you guys think about that. Well, I think the I think the movie addresses this really directly um, in the form of the James Woods character because the James Woods character effectively becomes a simulacrum for the majority of the movie. You know, people who are looking at him are seeing James Woods going about and doing his thing, but in reality, he's actually just enacting what he's been instructed to do by you know Faceless Corporation A or opponent to Faceless Corporation A. You know, his entire, the, almost almost the entirety of his actions in the movie are basically scripted by those two individuals, and his own personality does not peek through much, if at all, because he's just being directed. Um, and so he himself is, to some extent, you know, a television box showing something that on a screen that's being broadcast through him, rather than actually being a thing in himself. Yeah, uh, certainly in the second half of the movie, that's true. Um, his personality shows through in the first 15 minutes, and then after that, he kind of gets replaced by... I mean, this was the point that I was making when I was talking about his manipulability, whether or not that... It, for me, that that distracted me from him as a character and, and allowed me not to... Uh, prevented me from empathizing from him with him as much as as I would have liked. I'm starting to see, as I sort of talked about in that, that earlier question, was whether or not that's the point of the movie or not. Um, this idea of a hyper-real person, I think you're right, Antonio, that that we see a lot of that in the, the second half of the film. Um, I also think we see a little bit of that in the first half of the film as well. I mean, these characters, I... <sighs> 
I, there's something that is extreme about all of them. I mean, even in the first 15 minutes, his character is, I, I certainly today it would be considered a, a cliche of this sort of asshole uh, television exec who's, you know, kind of a Jeremy Piven character it, or a James Woods character, really. Um, and, uh, and then even the, the, the woman who's um, um, Debbie Barry's character, um, she is not, I, there was something that always, that troubles me about her, Debbie Harry, thank you, uh, that troubles me about her character in the first half of the film. I almost felt as though she was being set up to be this kind of sex pod, this, 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 uh, uh, metonym of male desires, something that uh, rather than having a uh, dynamic personality in and of herself, she was just the, the, the sort of receptacle for male desire, um, especially aberrant male desire. And um, I wonder if she would qualify as a hyper real character, even in the first 15 minutes of this movie. Go ahead and tell um. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, the more I'm thinking about it, the more it, the more I would almost put it to you that a majority of the characters in the movie have a significant amount of hyper reality to them. Because if you think about it, you now obviously the James Woods character is sort of a simulacrum because he 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 is just being sort of guided along like a puppet. You know, he's a, he's an expression of other people's wills rather than his own. And in that respect, he's hyper-real. But the people that he encounters are largely hyper-real, too. For example, the Debbie Harry character, it's stated outright, and of course, whether you believe him or not is up to you, but it's stated outright that she never actually existed, that she was a simulacrum the entire time. She actually is literally an entire, her entire existence is, uh, is hyper-reality. Um, and... Uh, and I think that you can you can extrapolate this to some of the other characters in the movie as well. Like for example, Harlan. You know, for all for the majority of the movie, we know him to be you know James Wood's ally, this hacker type individual. We know particulars about his activities and what he's what he does and what he's good at. And then we find out that he's a completely different individual at the end. We discover that the Harlan we've been watching the entire movie has been a, a hyper reality. You know, it's been simply simply a shell that we've been projecting into and that the actual character was a much more nefarious individual the entire time. Well, and that and that brings us to what is reality and can we even trust what our own perception is? Uh, a lot of times we're wrong about the people that enter into our lives. Um, in his mind, he was luring this woman into his bedroom, but she was ready to do that from the very beginning. And even when he brought up, you know, you're wearing this red dress with red lipstick, you know, like I'm wearing a red dress with red lipstick right now. And Antonio's wearing a red shirt. So obviously he's trying to entice you guys too. Uh, you know, the, he was like, you're, you're trying to entice. And she's like, well, yeah. <laughs> she's like but of I course get I am memo, I should have I'm sorry <laughs> but <laughs> you yeah, know the exchange at the beginning uh on, on the talk show where it's like well then why are you wearing that dress and uh she outright says that uh she is looking for attention and whatnot I mean he even brings up Freud like what would Freud say about that uh what would Freud say about that red dress and uh, then she literally becomes an object a living breathing 
object that he sucked into, uh, which by the way, I love the special effects on that. Holy crap. But uh, uh, the, the idea that she literally became an object and became objectified. And this was her entire purpose from the get-go. And she enticed him being like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but the, there's these certain girls on the internet who are just down for any anything, right? They're just like, oh yeah, whatever you're into, whatever you're into, it's usually an ad, right? It's 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 a way of them trying to market themselves or or market something else. Um, the idea of him putting needles through her earlobes and you know licking it, <laughs> licking the blood from it, and and enjoying that sexual thing, she knew all of his desires before he probably even knew what all of his desires were. She was obviously meant to lure him into this um underground thing and even when people were like don't do this he was like uh okay i'm gonna do it <laughs> like you kept getting warned and and so at what point do we start to question ourselves our own views our own ideas our own we might be ignorant of something and and this goes into stuff like the news right when we talk about fake news when we talk about deep fakes how often have we fallen for stuff that isn't real or uh, maybe watch something that was sensationalized that isn't actually that sensational, that it was made into that for the cash? Do we just like that kind of drama? Are we aware that we're going into some bullshit and just like going with it anyway? Like at what point is it uh, on us that we go into these worlds and enjoy what we're partaking in? I think another film that that has something to say about this is uh, Wag the Dog, um, where there's there's this moment in the movie where, um, if you're not familiar with the movie, uh, Robert De Niro and Dustin Hoffman get together and create a fake war in order to distract the public's attention in order to garner favor for a political candidate. And there's this one moment in the movie which I think is 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 clear is is uh, sort of speaking to some of the points that Garrett was making earlier when she was when he was talking about Baudrillard, but uh, the war's over. I just saw it on television. Um, as soon as he sees it on television, that means it's real. And I think that that has a lot to say. I, I mean, the the next thing that I really want to talk about is what does Videodrome have to say about our culture? And I, I it given the fact that many people are living their lives online and that um, online reality is almost more important to many of these these people than actual, you know, going out in the world reality. Um, I, I, I think that there's there's a lot to that that when Videodrome um, creates this science sci-fi exaggeration, of a world that it's is it's more important to live in the screen or live this this reality that's been created for you by the screen and that you're almost sucked into the screen literally uh, that 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 is a condition that many people in in our day um, deal with. Now the question is is I think that Videodrome is clearly condemning that, but would we be so quick to condemn those people who live all their lives online? Would he, Garrett, you're 
Yeah, I want to at this point you're bringing in Jim with what Shayla was saying a second ago here. Um, what was that movie a few years back that Joseph Gordon-Led movie about the guy who's addicted to internet porn, likes it more than he actually likes sex? Uh, well, there's Shame that no, was... No, 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 not Shame. It was okay. Joseph it was definitely a Joseph Gordon-Levitt film. He actually like, produced it and everything. It was a. It was a it was Are a, we talking about uh, the one with Scarlett Johansson and whatnot? Don 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 John. Yeah. Yeah, Don John. Yeah. Uh, I did not see the film, sadly, but I, I saw enough about it to to, to, to track right. it. And and you know, again, it, it's pretty clear. So again, making a commentary on the idea that you know, a certain type of people of, of a certain generation, at least, or get so enmeshed in virtual sex that real sex starts to lose its appeal. It's not that they can't distinguish it. It's quite the opposite. It's it's it's, it's that the artificial reality is superior to the real reality, and it's sort of a tragedy uh, enmeshed in that. So everything that that, that Cher is talking about. Uh, about, you know, should we feel guilty for consuming this material? You know, to, to what extent are we doing something that is sort of reprehensible um, uh, uh, by sort of partaking in these, these, these alternate realities, these virtual realities? Um, uh, you know, uh, there's a really good podcast series by John Ronson um, about the uh, called the butterfly effect, the high costs, the high cost of free pornography, which is also sort of exploring. You know, uh, you know, everyone's sort of consuming all this porn for free, but uh, there's a human cost on the other end, uh, which is uh, sort of a, a, another way of asking the sort of same question about uh, uh, the, the the ethical dimensions of consuming and participating in these these sort of fictional realities. Um, I wish I had some sort of grand way of sort of uh, uh, of unifying those two questions, but uh, I think it's yeah the there. I, I think I'm not the only person who's probably been 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 tempted at some times to uh, in both directions to completely eschew um, you know the the virtual to get away to unplug to disconnect to go on a vacation not even bring my cell phone um, uh, to, to 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 go on a complete fast of any kind of internet pornography or anything else like that. And then also at the same time to despair of the real world, you know, and, and to and to to say that you know, I mean, what we're doing right here, right? You know, the 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 four of us sitting here talking, you know, we're all spread out in different states and different time zones, um, uh, yet we're brought together by it, and 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 we've made some real close friendships here because of the internet uh, that are in many ways closer than a lot of the friendships that I have in my sort of physical proximate reality. So how awesome is that to have, you know? "Quote unquote virtual friends, which are uh, uh, so valuable and so important to me. So this this dichotomy of, of of the 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 fake world being better and at the same time worse than the real world is something that uh, that I find difficult to resolve in myself. Well, I met my husband on YouTube. <laughs> like, what is reality? Because originally uh, there was actually a, a moment in time, and this is just weird, bizarre land, but. When, when Daniel and I first started talking to each other, um, there was a time where he freaked out and stopped talking to me for three days. I didn't know why. And then he came back and he was like, am I being catfished? Is is there something going, is someone playing a prank on me? Are you real? Where do you really live? Is that your real name? What, it, you're just too good to be true for me? And it's freaking me out. This was before we were even dating or anything. We were just friends, but he was like, there's no way someone like you actually exists. You're you're too perfect for me, and it's freaking me out. And at what point uh, is something real? I was very much real, <laughs> and I was being very real with him, but it didn't seem real to him. What is reality at that point? What? Where do we decide what that is? And so many times there are people that I've met 
that are like, oh, I'm in a very serious relationship. I've been with this person for three years. Come to find out they've never seen a picture of them, never actually talked to them on the phone. They've sent them money to help them out with stuff, but they're like, no, I'm in a serious relationship. No, you're not. Someone's using you. What is real? Is it just based off of our own perception or is it based off of what is actually going on and who decides what is actually going on? It's, it's really a complicated mess. And I think this is why we all get into these philosophical debates and these debates about religion and all these other things online, because it, it's us basically deciding what's real. What is real? That is really what it all boils down to. I want to quote one of Jim's favorite movie here. No one knows anyone not that well. Um, and that's sort of what shows that, again, there's a dimension of this problem which predates any kind of digital technology, any kind of advancement. It, it, it maybe just goes back as far as language, right? The, the, the first time we invented language, we invented ways to lie to each other and to lie to ourselves. Uh, we, invent, we invent language so we can conceal the truth, someone once said. I can't remember who that was. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the mere fact that we have a media of any kind, even if it's just the media of language, allows us to misrepresent ourselves to each other and to ourselves um, and, and who hasn't been in an intimate relationship with someone, right? And wondered deeply, is this person really who I believe they are? Or am I only seeing the version of them that they want me to see? Or am I looking at them through rose colored glasses and seeing what I want to see? And that's the kind of thing that if you really let it chew you up can be an acid that will dissolve any relationship that you ever have. So it's, it's really difficult to balance loving and trusting and having faith in both another person and your understanding of that other person with all of these reasons to be skeptical or reasons to doubt reasons to worry that no one ever knows anyone not that well and that movie was set in the 1920s uh miller's crossing was what he was quoting one of my favorites well my favorite movie of all time period end of story no other questions um antonio what do you what do you think about this uh, aspect of hyper real and online avatars and all of those things and and how the film relates to that do you want to jump in on this uh this debate here well, like I said before, um, I think that the film has a really interesting presaging of screen names in particular. Um, and I, and I honestly, you know, for me, like I said, the, the main aspect of the film that, that, uh, that deals with what we would today recognize as like online interactions is mostly the, um, the, the character, the, the the mediation through tapes, you know, the idea oh, right. that the idea that the yeah. idea of referred presence, um, or of or a or a completely virtualized sense of identity, um, and you know, of course, like I said, there's there's a definitely an open question, particularly in the second half of the movie, as to how much of the other characters also are that level of virtualized, and but just not being depicted as as such quite as obviously um but uh but i definitely think i definitely think that that this is one of the what well, this is honestly for 1983 i don't think there's any movie pre 1983 or before that quite as clearly presages the virtualization of identity as video drum does i think it's very very ahead of its time in that regard i can't think of any movie that that does as good a job of spelling out explicitly you know you guys will have screen names and your identity will be virtualized and referred in the future and being dead on about it i'm trying to think now challenge accepted like what is there a film before 1983 that was i mean i think a lot of this film's criticisms are presaged by uh by network 
Um, but that has to do with media consumption, not necessarily uh, screen names. Um, I'm trying to think maybe Rollerball a little bit because those those characters are known only by their um, only by their their avatar, not avatars, but only by their their sports names rather than um, their actual names. But even then, I don't know if that's uh, yeah, that's an interesting question, Antonio. Um, I'm, I'm going to do one other thing on the, on this sort of virtual uh, reality. Um, I was trying to look for the story uh, previous, and and I wasn't able to find it. So I'm doing this all from memory, and and it's memory from an anecdote that someone else told me. So so take this with a a grain of salt. But there was a uh, there's sort of a online reality where you create an avatar and and a character and you basically live in sort of an open world game. I'm not familiar with the game and I, I, I didn't really know. So the details of the story are really awful. I think it is Second Life, uh, Shayra, thank you. Um, and one, one person had an avatar on Second Life. Um, she she was invested in this avatar. She was invested in this this character. And in the Second Life world, the avatar was raped, and this created for for the person playing this avatar an actual emotional crisis. Um, and that is an area I think where legitimate criticisms of how much of our lives are being lived online could be waged. But then, you know, I also have to take my, take myself out of it and, and, and my own sort of ideas about reality and, and uh, my commitment to an online world and say, well, for this person, this was really real. I mean, that's a, uh, a and, and it would, it would be, um, it would be wrong of me to uh, suggest that uh, that her pain wasn't as legitimate as as anybody else's. So I think that's a really interesting question. The video drum is 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 dipping its toes in. Uh, Garrett mentions altered states in the uh, um, in the chat, and I think that's an it, we could go on an altered states tangent as well. I love that movie. William Hurt's first movie, my favorite actor, nineteen uh, eighty. Uh, but yeah, uh, so I, I, th I, that that's also sort of an interesting way to to think about this question is is now that um, we're living in 2019 and what does Videodrome have to say about it? Um, how would Videodrome sort of react to the Second Life person whose whose avatar was was violated? Um, yeah. If we're gonna go into a couple of the other films. Um, so, uh, I, I, what is it called? The uh, existence, am I saying it right? Uh, where they're like in a yeah. video game? Yeah, mm -hmm. existence. Uh, That's where the, they have the Cronenberg film, yeah. Yeah, that was 1999, and I think it got kind of overlooked because of the Matrix, but, um, you know, the idea that we could literally plug ourselves into a biological game, uh, and interact with one another in a way that felt like reality, so much so that actual reality felt unreal after you've been plugged into this thing. Uh, it's a very interesting concept, but um, if we want to go even to a more modern film that I'm going to suggest to everybody uh, is The Congress with Robin Wright. It's 2013. Uh, and 
it's this idea that all the celebrities and she plays herself. Robin Wright plays Robin Wright in this. It's the idea that celebrities are going to get uh, put into a system so that they never age, they never die, uh, and they can be put into any movie at that younger state forever, infinitely, uh, and even have like animated versions of themselves. And eventually the film delves into, it goes into an animated uh, film where you get to be avatars in this like gaming world where we all interact as avatars and it is our reality. That is our reality from now on is living as these cartoon caricatures of ourselves and that all film is a, a digitized CGI version of these famous actors who've been programmed into a system and, and the horror of that. Um, very fascinating stuff. So I, I think we, we just keep going down the line of, oh no, new tech is scary, but is it prophesizing the, the projection, the trajectory of the, of what, where the tech is going? Is this actually what's going to happen? Are, are, are someday, are they going to take versions of me right now talking to you guys and make it seem like I said stuff I never said? It's very, it's a very interesting and concerning possibility. As I was telling Peter Cushing, who played Grand Moff Tarkin just the other day, uh, go ahead, Garrett. You seemed like you wanted to jump in. Uh, no, I was just, I, I looked up the film share, and apparently it's based on a Stanislaw Lem novel, which is interesting because I really like Stanislaw Lem. So I'm definitely going to check that out. I find that uh, that sounds like a great film. Thanks for the recommend there. Um, but uh, I, uh, I wanted to sort of uh, uh, take that idea again of, 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 of hyper reality of, of of the deep fake of of may of taking you know the our recorded voices which are out here on youtube and in principle anyone could uh you know if the proper algorithm could could uh, piece together the various phonemes and make it seem like any one of us are saying a number of things that we never actually said um and then that again that brings us back to uh uh the the, the line from wag the dog right i just saw it on television uh, uh uh therefore it's real i just saw it on the internet therefore it's real um and uh, uh, another th th idea which has come to my mind, I'm sure several of you being fans of films, what happens when we get to the point when we no longer need actors? And I don't just mean in the fact, way that we can create sort of artificial characters, which we can already do reasonably well. I'm talking about the point when, when, when a company can take Brad Pitt's likeness and do a whole film in which Brad Pitt is acting through everything, that everyone's going to look at it, Brad Pitt, but Brad Pitt never once showed up on set. Uh, now, obviously, there would be legal challenges to this and so forth, but set the legal issues aside and just think about it from a creative technological point of view. Once we no longer need actors to act, once machines can take images of existing actors as well as create novel new ones that express every bit of nuance and range of emotion uh, that, that we love to get out of films, where does that leave us as creators? Where does that leave us as consumers? Yeah, as I was telling Peter Cushing just the other day, I mean, this it's really, uh, I mean, and you were talking in a previous conversation about how AI can write scripts. So there you have an AI who's able to write a script, an actor uh, who's able to perform that script, and a studio exec who's completely out of a job, but because he's rich, probably on an island, whereas the cameraman and the union reps and all of the other people, the craft services people are all out of a job. I mean, it's a, uh, I don't know. I, I guess 
my i i believe and this is you are going to say that this is foolhardy garrett and maybe even you antonio i i i suspect i don't although you and i've never had this conversation but i suspect that the ai will never actually be able to write a human story as well as a human can that's what i believe um antonio shaking his head uh and and perhaps that that belief is foolhardy but um, I think that there is something associated with the really good films that an AI would be incapable of, of replicating. Uh, Antonio, do you want to uh, wage your objection? <laughs> well, just as, a, as somebody with a, a lot of a tech background, I'm, I'm pretty maximalist on the future capacities of AI. There isn't really anything in theory that they can't duplicate at a human level if you give them enough processing power and enough training opportunities. So um, I, I would conditionally disagree with you. I would say that AI will definitely be able to, you know, in 50 years, will be able to write scripts as good as you or I could write for any kind of movie. However, I don't think that that's necessarily going to obsolete humans. I think in a lot of regard, the AI and, and robots, you know, our automation is going to replace humans in rote tasks, but in more bespoke sorts of roles, I think there's going to remain a significant demand for the human touch just because human consumers will want to know that there was a human hand in it. You know, even if a robot chef cooks better, you're still gonna want the cordon bleu guy cooking your meal. Uh, and so I think the same thing is probably going to be true for movies also. Yeah, I think somebody, I, I was, I had a reply already for you, but Stephen Ernest in the chat beat me to it. AIs will make better Star Wars movies. I think that uh, essentially that was the, the comment that I was going to make is that um, I think an AI would be able to write a Star Wars movie, but I don't think an AI would be able to write Annie Hall. So there's two, yeah, there's two separate questions there, which I think you've, you've put your head on. Could a AI pass a screenplay Turing test, as it were, that, that you wouldn't realize it was written by an AI, but it wouldn't, you know, it, it would be on par with any sort of, you know, B grade film or something like that, if you, if you, if you like. Um, so it, it's still, it's still passing in the sense that you don't realize it's, it's written by a machine rather than a human. Uh, but then there's a sort of an ar artistic level Turing test, if you will. Can it write Annie Hall? Um, and I, I agree with you, uh, Jim, that it's a lot harder to teach an AI to do that, but it, they're already doing it for music. Uh, uh, you know, if you, if you should seriously go online and listen to some music that's been written by artificial intelligence, and it is really beautiful. There's stuff that's that's heartbreakingly gorgeous music that, you know, you, you, A, if you didn't know, if you weren't told, you wouldn't realize it's written by a machine. Uh, and, and, and it can it can really, you know, move the soul. Um, in, in that respect, writing a screenplay or a novel or something like that appears to be harder, at least, uh, than, than writing a piece of music. But like Antonio says, it's really just a matter of time. Might not happen within our lifetimes even, but it's almost certainly going to happen eventually, provided that we don't exterminate ourselves. So then what's the real question is, uh, is it going to be about the films being written by AI? Is the only job going to be left for us to review those films and discuss them? Is yes, this the last final job? <laughs> <laughs> That's what just what you were saying, Cheryl. Right, that at some point in the, in the relatively near future, they will be able to uh, program AIs to take our images and our voices and to make us review it, and we won't have to even be a part of it, and our audience will be none the wiser. That's the real video drome, yo. Sure. <laughs>
And so uh, let's uh, let's sort of shift gears. A I'm actually bit. horrified <laughs> right now. Yeah, I'm a little horrified too. That's why I'm shifting gears. Um, one thing that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, some of the people who weren't, uh, yes, this is live um, to the person uh, who who comments in the chat. Yeah, um, we may not be going live next week. We may be going live next week. If you have opinions on that, if you think that we should be live or if you think that we should be recorded and uploading our edited videos to YouTube, please let us know in the comments or in the chat as well, and we will take your point of view in consideration as we're making that decision once Google Hangouts dies on August 1st, a very sad death. Um, let's uh, shift gears to another aspect of this film. Um, we talked about the uh, body horror aspects of the, the film. One thing that, that, that got me is the kind of over-the-top death of Barry Convex, uh, one of the characters in there. Um, are these I, one of the, the questions that, that occurred to me? Are these sort of typical Cronenberg gross out moments, or why was it answer the it, it, make me like the movie better? Why was that? Why were those death throws so violent and disgusting? What did that mean? What was Remind that? Which character was Barry Convex? Barry Convex was the person who gets assassinated at the convention. He is the leader of, as Antonio so succinctly referred to it, uh, Faceless Corporation A. Um, so Barry Convex dies and his everything decides to do things that bullets don't do. Um, what, what, why, why did that, why did that happen? Cancer. Cancer. Uh, Videodrome is a cancer. And they actually talk about this. And, and honestly, this is really where the, the film gets kind of really gross and morbid. Um, and I'm not just in a Cronenberg way. So, um, there's a cancer inside of him because he has been a part of Videodrome, just like the the main character it's something growing inside of them that's going to affect uh an early it's going to make an early death for them and it explodes out at getting shot now the interesting thing is they refer to this in, a, in multiple times that being exposed to videodrome is a cancer and we see this all the time when they're like oh when you put your phone against your head you're getting a cancer in your head when you sit in front of your microwave to watch your burrito be made, there's a cancer getting in your head. They constantly are talking about this. This is a uh, over the top uh, showing of how tech gives you cancer, playing into those fears of that time period. But here's the other fucked up part about this. Marshall, our good friend Marshall. Yes, I referenced him again. Sorry, drink. <laughs> I'm gonna drink too. Marshall got a cancer in his head. And uh, after getting it removed, had parts of his memory gone. He had to reread some of his own books to get some of his own knowledge back. Because this is a philosopher, right? He, he knows things, but he started to forget things. And they hint at these things with Brian Oblivion being Marshall, right? Uh, where it's not him anymore. It's like this weird programmed version of himself that's been pieced together by this corporation at a certain point you know is the philosopher the philosopher if he's lost his philosophical knowledge even if he's re-reading his own stuff is it still him who is he anymore is he able to uh get this information into his head and, and keep it there so yeah oblivion got a tumor and 
Marshall McLuhan in real life had a brain tumor that helped uh, eliminate some of his knowledge. And then eventually when he shot this corporate master, you see that his entire body is inundated with this cancer. It's everywhere in him. It didn't just happen in his brain. It was everywhere in him. So this is actually a very morbid representation of the death of an actual philosopher in Cronenberg style with Cronenberg telling that story. And it's messed up. And it is very memorable. A lot of people, that's the main thing they remember from the film is that scene. Uh, and it's about actual cancer, which it, that is real or is it? I don't know. Uh, we're, we're, we go into that too much here. Sure. I absolutely <laughs> love that reading that, that, that gave me an appreciation for that scene, which I did not have before in some multiple ways. Um, so that, that, that rules my reading prior to that, which now I recognize is vastly inferior. Uh, I just thought it was Cronenberg's way of saying that he was never really real. And again, this, this is in the late phase of the film where everything is, you know, a, a question about whether or not what's real and what's not. And I just thought it was his way of saying this was never really a human being. This was just a, an extrapolation, a projection, an imagination, if you will. And so it dissolves the second it's, it, it's no longer needed. Uh, it doesn't do what the actual human corpse would do. That was how I read it, but I like yours much better, Cher. <laughs> But it's it's not. I I saw it, but uh, I mean, it's 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 very convex. It's not Brian uh, Oblivion. Like, isn't Brian Oblivion supposed to be the Marshall McLuhan character? And yes. uh, he's not. He's not. I, I'm not. I'm not equating the same. I'm just saying that they have actually referenced many times in the film that being exposed to video drum is a cancer. That's what the gun is. It's a cancer. Everything is a cancer. They they equate. Videodrome with cancer and with something that is spread and takes over your body and affects who you are as a person. So that's really like an underlying thing. And this idea, which is still prevalent today, you still see in the news today that new tech causes cancer. Phones cause cancer. Your microwave causes cancer. Being in front of your computer screen too long causes cancer. Everything causes cancer. They are always making you afraid of new tech. Uh, and I think that they're kind of going on uh, on that. But also, cancer is in everybody <laughs> so uh and and it's all too real like so many people end up going that way so it's scary it is horrifying and it's real yeah i i mean i guess i i but barry convex's character deliberately said that he never uh jumped into video drum that he doesn't I, I'm actually, I, as much as your interpretation is really interesting and I, I like it, I'm kind of siding toward Garrett's because the, he deliberately says that he never watches Videodrome. So I, I'm still having problems. But then who that. killed him? But then who killed him? Uh, the, the James Woods character, Max did. No, no, the Oblivion guy. Oh, who killed Oblivion? Uh, he dies before the film starts. Yeah. By who? Or whom? Is it who or whom? Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think you're right about cancer. He died on an operating table with with cancer. That was uh, that was what was what his daughter says. I mean, maybe we're sort of getting in the weeds here, but uh, uh, maybe. But uh, yeah, it, it it it's it's this idea that he had cancer, and they these people behind that corporation that created Videodrome. Uh, they were responsible for his ultimate demise and and the way that it went and then taking his persona and then utilizing that to create more cancer on others. 
uh, inform the cancer in everybody. So I, I feel like it was a, a way of giving, it's, it's not an STD because it's cancer, but it's in a way putting a cancer in you using the new tech. Uh, and not to, to put too fine a point on it, but can we quickly comment on the name? Very convex, a convex lens, of course, focuses yeah. light, distorts light. Uh, you know, it's, they're used in actual cameras and so forth. So it's just an interesting choice of name. I wanted to throw that in there. Yeah. Uh, I think there was another reference to the homeless shelter. Uh, it was uh, named after the tube inside of a television. Uh, they, they keep talking about this, and I know it has to do with the idea that the television is the retina of the mind's eye or whatever the uh that's like the over encompassing uh, encompassing idea that uh our brains are seeing what the tv sees therefore that's you know our eyes so i don't know so uh now that we talked about the nature of reality let's talk about some sex yeah um, uh, specifically non-traditional sexuality. We referenced this a little bit earlier in the, in the podcast, but let's kind of, uh, dig a little more deeper into, um, sex and sexuality as represented in the film. There's this key exchange in the beginning of the movie, Nikki, uh, the, uh, Debbie Harry character says, um, what is this? Videodrome? Uh, Max says torture, murder. Nikki says, sounds great. Max says, ain't exactly sex. Nikki says who? Garrett, you referenced this a little bit earlier. Uh, Nikki's sexuality is really interesting as it's treated in this film. It's almost as though this film sort of goes out of its way not to kink shame this character. And I wonder is... The, I mean, we've talked a lot about 1980s morality as it relates to Videodrome, but is the depiction of sexuality, especially um, non-traditional BDSM sexuality, uh, actually progressive for its time in Videodrome? What do you think? Sex and pain. Okay. So that was <laughs> a really bad question. Nobody is. No, <laughs> no I'll, I, I'll let Garrett go into it. Part of me wants to say, I and mean, again, this I probably is, is an unfair criticism given the time and given the budgetary constraints and so forth, and no doubt producer overhead. But I was a little disappointed that the sex wasn't more explicit. To be frank, I mean, again, the 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 most explicit sex scene is, is of course, yeah, when the gun is pushed into his uh, his body. And as you mentioned, that there's there's the rapey scene with the with the video later on as well, and and that's pretty explicit. But again, th that is a, a kind of metaphorical sex, if you will, or, or 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 imagistic form of sex rather than actual sex. When you actually go back and, and take a look at the the, the 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 sexual content of the film, it's fairly minimalistic. Now, again, maybe that was a deliberate artistic choice. Maybe it wanted to sort of show by indirection or something like that. Um, but you know, I, again, I think of a film of other films that have sort of explored this, the, this territory, most of them came later and probably had a little more, uh, creative liberty to do that. Um, but, uh, the, the, the exploration of, of explicit sex seemed to be something I thought that was kind of missing in some ways in this film. So, yeah, I, I would like to discuss this because, um, the thing is, uh, I feel like she was in a way like porn is on the internet today it's not real it's kind of um almost a hallucination almost just an, a thing to entice you um the, it, the cool thing is is she is 100 doing whatever she wants that is very progressive for its time this woman doing whatever she wants however she likes that's huge 
What's interesting is she then lures him into a deeper down the rabbit hole. And eventually he's the one that is assaulted. In fact, he's the one that is assaulted multiple times. Um, and so I find it very interestingly progressive in that the woman has a lot more control over her situation. And the man has way less of control over the situation and in a way is even more so objectified than she is. Uh, the only thing that kind of makes it a little gray area for me where I'm like, what's going on here is when she's seen as like captured by them and, and you know, oh no, she needs to be saved and, and he needs to come in and protect her when she's made that decision that that's how she wants to go and that's where she wants to be. Uh, are they saying that he's misreading the situation? Was the whole thing fabricated? Th those are the kinds of questions that pop into my mind. I, I, I don't know. Honestly, I have a hard time with it. Um, it is very strange for someone who's like, yeah, this is the person I want to be. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, he needs to be rescued. I, it's a little bit confusing to me. And I'm actually seeing now that some people are bringing up it's like a, a cult or a religion. You know, maybe that's what it is. Is this how we get lured into cults? And maybe this should be the time when we just start discussing how this might be like a religion and how people get lured into those kinds of things. So. Yeah, as far as the sexuality of the movie, um, I actually, my reading of it is that it's actually a fairly prudish movie in tonally speaking. Um, because there isn't actually any sex shown in the movie. There's a lot of, a lot of the movie is actually about sex, but the movie avoids explicit reference to it. And all of the references to it are increasingly, I would say, uh, of a repressed nature. You know what I mean? Like obviously, you know, the vagina and the stomach is, you know, a repressed sexual image. The gun, like having flesh grow over it is a repressed sexual image of some kind. Um, the idea of having James Woods and the, um, the, uh, Nikki Brand character, um, lie down together naked and then he penetrates her repeatedly without actually doing anything explicitly sexual. Um, so I think, I think there's a lot of, of referred sexuality in the movie, but I think that the movie, and I don't know if this is deliberate or not, you know, to some extent it might be trying to make a point by desexualizing the movie, but then amping up the implicit sexuality. Um, but to some extent, I think that the movie does moralize against, uh, you know, hedonic sexuality. And so to that extent, it might be an unconscious bias on the director's part, it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, I I was kind of expecting a little bit more from Cronenberg, who made uh, Crash. But then uh, I think one of the uh, one of our uh, commenters points out that Crash was uh, relatively tame as well in its sexuality. I don't know if I totally agree with that, uh, but there's there's definitely some graphic scenes in that. And uh, as you point out in the chat. Shayra, they spoon hard in both uh, Videodrome and in Crash. Um, let's, uh, Garrett, you wanted to bring up a, a few other points, kind of going back to the issues of hyperreality and um, maybe even, let's say, this is a subject that we haven't explored too much, the uh, religious symbology associated with long live the new flesh. Let's, uh, let's talk about some of those things. Um, what do you think? 
Uh, your mic's off. Go ahead and uh, try again. Noted. Yeah, we, we've quoted several times. Uh, there's the Marshall McLuhan idea that the medium is the message. Um, and that's obviously again, a fascinating idea. It's one that has a lot of uh, currency and one which this film is drawing a lot of inspiration from. Um, but there's there's philosophical pushback to that idea and I think to 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 the film uh, accordingly. Um, uh, Alan Watts, the 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 sort of uh, quasi Buddhist Western philosopher, uh, has a, 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 a counterpoint, which is the the, uh, the menu is not the meal, and uh, uh, this sort of speaks more broadly to this idea of of the map territory relation. Uh, there is that that wonderful short story from Jorge Luis Borges, um, uh, the uh, partial uh, uh, enchantments, I think, is, is it something like that? I want to say. Um, uh, but it's a it's a it's a one paragraph story talking about where an empire cartographers got so good that they made a perfect map of the entire empire that was a one to one relationship. It was the exact same size of the empire, um, and so this this notion of map territory relation uh, is it can be used here as a pushback to McLuhan and to Videodrome, just saying that there it, it is conceptually impossible for a simulation to be. Uh, completely indistinct, indistinguishable from reality, because there's always something lost in the translation. Uh, uh, that reality, by its very nature, um, is is something that is distinct from the representation thereof. Now, it's certainly possible for us to get confused about which is which. Obviously, we can get lost in a fever dream or something like that. Um, uh, but that's a perceptual issue, not a conceptual issue. At, at, at a sort of base metaphysical level, the the, the distinction between simula and simulacra actually is it is inherently distinguishable um and i think that there that you know, again if we take that to the uh um some of you may have noticed this uh, again we were talking about youtube earlier right there's a, a a survey done of young children right who who now wants to be uh, uh more than anything youtube stars rather than astronauts and this sort of is sort of you know uh, given with this sort of tut tut again this sort of this this moralizing idea which again i think videodrome is very much on board with um uh, that we want to be on television you know right we, we want to be famous we want to be virtual more than anything else and again i i don't mean to completely dismiss that uh i don't mean to completely um suggest that there isn't a polar or there isn't something to that but i want to say at the same time again as i was expressing from my own self but i think i can i think a lot of people share this um uh there is both a, a desire to escape that virtual reality not out of horror necessarily but out of a desire to sort of to, to shake it off and to refresh to go outside and take a breath of fresh air and i don't think that there's that that's all that uh, uh lost i think i think that most people actually have a fairly healthy grasp of the difference between the virtual and the real they they may get lost momentarily but then they step outside and they have a a a a, a, a beer with their neighbors or a meal with their family um, and so as much as we, as we can sort of can condemn people for getting lost in the virtual, for having their phones in their faces all, all the time, I, I think that there's something to be said for the idea that the menu is not the meal and we understand this. But I mean, to what degree are you, uh, missing what, let me rephrase that. Um, I think that McLuhan if I can bring McLuhan from uh, behind the movie poster uh, in the line, like that scene in Annie Hall, um, I think he might say something along the lines of, you're saying my whole fallacy is wrong, which actually makes no sense. Um, but uh, he might say something along the lines of, 
there is a difference between the way we engage with hot media like a book, a movie, television, um, something that doesn't require an interpersonal engagement and a conversation, a symposium, a discussion, a seminar, a cool medium, according to McLuhan. I need to take a bunch of drinks. Um, and so, so there is a difference in which we engage, a difference with which we engage with those types of media. Um, people who want to be YouTube stars may not just be, may want to turn a hot medium cold. And because YouTube is, is set up the way it is, it, the, the barriers of entry are, uh, much less than they were, you know, in, in Marshall McLuhan's day or in, um, even in Socrates day, like it's much harder to write a book and then get it published and then get it distributed and get it read than it is to put a YouTube video up, uh, for the world to see. So I, I, I will push back against your McLuhan, your criticisms of McLuhan because I think we're, first of all, in a little bit of a different entertainment landscape and media landscape, but I also think that your criticism might, with respect, sir, miss McLuhan's point. And that is that uh, that he's trying to distinguish between our engagement with the media, not necessarily whether or not people have well-balanced lives. Well, not to get too far down the rabbit hole, but I would push back at that and say that I think if he honestly believes that film and novels aren't a creative cooperation between audience and creator, I think he's just wrong about that. I think that, you know, again, this is drawing on some sort of uh, 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 Kantian psychology here, even that uh, that we very much participate in the construction of works of art as we consume them. Um, so I, I sort of question the, uh, the the distinction between hot and cold media there uh, on its front. But to tie it back into the film, um, uh, again, I don't mean to suggest that there there aren't societal concerns about violence in media, about being over-sexualized and overstimulated, or about the, the, the losing grip on reality in some ways and confusing fake news for real news, because those are all legitimate real themes. But I don't want to let that interpretation go unchallenged, because you know, I, I, I do think that in spite of the fact that this can cause real problems, Many people have perfectly normal, healthy sex lives, and that can involve uh, online pornography. That can involve BDSM. Um, uh, we can consume media without getting completely confused about what, about the nature of reality. Um, so, it, I, I, I suppose what I want to say is that we, we should take all these criticisms, which again are legitimate and interesting, with a sort of uh, 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 pinch of salt, if you will, for recognizing that it's. Uh, it, the, it's not that bad, or you know, or at least for most of us, we we do still have one foot grounded in reality, um, uh, grounded in healthy sex. That, you, that even if it does involve uh, simulations, even if it does involve pornography or BDSM. Um, uh, again, let, to go back to Antonio's point about being kind of prudish, you know, we can sort of push back against that prudery and say you can have a perfectly normal, perfectly healthy sex life or relationship with reality, even if it involves simulations, even if it involves uh, uh, fantasies in this of this variety. Even if it involves spooning super hard.
<laughs> maybe that's just how you do it let's not hate on that as a a fun thing to do with your partner <laughs> maybe, maybe it's not explicit but, yeah but um, the thing is is uh, that the interesting uh rabbit hole we go down with the philosophical themes and this film is when radio came out it created a new language when film came out it created a new language. When TV came out, it created a new language. When books came out, that created a new language. We have these new languages that get formed and they and they still evolve. Like language always evolves, right? Uh, there's a little bit of evolving, but there's always, oops, sorry, my mic got all messed up. Um, there's always that moment when a medium first comes out and we're forming that language. That's what we're doing with YouTube right now. Uh, we were there in the beginning days when YouTube first started out. And that is a forming of a language. We decided that, hey, we wanna have this look a little bit more like we're talking to our friends. Uh, we want this to look a little bit more like we're having a discussion about a book or maybe even arguing with somebody and, and calling them out so that they have to respond. We were creating a language from the very beginning. All of us were around in the beginning of the YouTube language starting days, and we're still helping form that language. And that language is evolving with the tech because right now we are going through an issue of Google Hangouts is going out. We're not going to be able to do a show like this ever again. This is the last time this part of our language will be put out on YouTube. And we're going to have to figure out a new way to speak to our fans and to speak to one another. And we have to evolve with that. And I don't know, this is just this is just part of the language creation, right? So uh, it, it's kind of exciting. And if anybody wants to try to hate on it, I get it because there are things to be concerned about. But at the end of the day, it's exciting to create a new language. We're a part of something interesting and it's fun. I don't know. Now I feel both sad and and that that Google that this is our last Google Hangouts show. I mean, we may still be able to work out the technology for live shows, but now I feel a little sad. All right, and with that, we're gonna end the show. Uh, so <laughs> we'll do a, a final thoughts. Let's score this movie. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about this. I'll go first, and then uh, we'll pass it. Shayra, we'll let you close since this was your pick. Um, yeah, I I think that my principal concern walking into this, walking out of this film, I should say, was um, the manipulability of the character and the the protagonist, and then how whether or not that fit into the theme. I mean, it was the the question I asked at the outset, and that was really my principal uh, problem with the movie. As I've sort of talked with it, talked about it with uh, with all of you, I I've kind of grown a little bit of a deeper appreciation for the film. At the at the first, this was not a recommend, um, but now I'm kind of moving toward a three-star rating for the film. Um, and that has a lot to do with all of the things that the film has to say. Now, uh, we brought up the idea that it's ethics and it's morality. We're kind of stuck in the 80s. I think that's still true. I think the I would like to see the protagonist uh, at least some internal struggle about him uh, making his own decisions as opposed and resisting the manipulation and the hypnosis of of this this medium. I mean, I think you know we we got into a kind of tangential rabbit hole about whether or not 
one can have a well-balanced life um, being immersed in this media at the same time as one is immersed in a, a real life interaction. And I'd kind of like to see a movie about that. And uh, I don't necessarily think that all of that is in Videodrome. But after this conversation, I've kind of been opened up to, to a lot more of the um, interesting themes in the film. And so for that reason, I give it three out of five stars and, and I, do, I do recommend it, and, but with some reservations. So um, Antonio Garrett, do you want to pick it up from there? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that would pretty much be uh, I, I, my take as far as the scoring too. As far as the score, I think I'd probably give it a seven out of 10, maybe a seven and a half out of 10. Um, and for basically the same reasons, it, it asks some really interesting questions. As I, you know, challenged kind of you guys earlier, I think it, I think it um, presages uh, some modern technological developments and societal developments in some really interesting ways that other media prior to it does don't really address in any kind of comprehensive way, and certainly not with the degree of specificity and accuracy that Videodrome displays. Um, so. Uh, it's a real smart movie in that regard. Um, it is very much the product of its time in its moral message, which I think it was dumb even in 1983 and got has gotten dumber over the years. It hasn't aged well. Um, but, uh, but it is still a, a very compelling, very different piece of cinema. It's done in a really interesting uh, way that, that, as I pointed out at the beginning, kind of casts you in the role of audience and asks you at the end of it how the film has affected you, maybe in a similar way that it has affected the James Woods character. Um, and so I think I think it's a it's a provocative movie. It's a beautiful movie. It's well executed. It's well it's well written for the most part, I think. Um, bit mired in its time. Um, the lack of budget does show through a little bit, although I think for the most part, it's commendable how little you notice of that in the movie. The movie just mostly just looks like an 80s movie. It doesn't particularly look cheap at too many points, and to the extent that it looks cheap, it's tawdry kind of commercial Andy Warhol type cheapness that sells the setting more effectively. And so I think it does, it does a good job of using its limited resources as well. Um, but it's held back of back just shy of greatness by some you know just average performances and a slightly muddled message that engages in some of the less savory tropes of its day. I think in, I'm in agreement with both uh, with the broad strokes of your criticisms, although I think the particular manifestations for me might be a little different. Uh, again, as I mentioned, I feel it, the film is sort of philosophically not as coherent as I would like it to be. I think it has two separate theses that it's running down in a way that the, is is less cohesive than I would like. Um, but at the same time, I I, again, I really like a lot of the questions that it's raising. Um, I, I agree it's, it's, it's ahead of its time. I think the special effects are amazing. Um, I every time I see a David Cronenberg film, I think I want to see more David Cronenberg films. Uh, I think and that's a real testimony to his strength as a director, because even when I see that there's weaknesses in a film and there's problems with the films, I really like 
his style and his talents. I mean, I think he basically invents the genre of body horror, but he's also done some really good work outside of that genre as well. Um, so uh, I, I think that he, he, it's, it's, he very much deserves, I think, his reputation as being a, a, a classic director. And this film, I think, really does a, does a good job of showcasing that in spite of its flaws. Um, I, I, uh, I, I'm captivated by a lot of, of what it's trying to do. I'm conflicted and confused, but also compelled by it. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I, I wish there was a more coherent thesis. I wish there was a more coherent uh, 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 character arc and a character plots. Uh, uh, you know, the 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 ending I think is really interesting, but I also kind of feel it's kind of forced in some ways. Uh, it, it sort of feels like they 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 knew where they wanted to get, but they weren't quite sure how they wanted to get there. They were more interested in playing with ideas. Uh, and with images rather than having a story that tied those ideas and images together in a way uh, that was as narratively satisfying as I generally like from a film. So yeah, I think I would score it also at, at that uh, at probably three, uh, between three and a half and three at this moment because the conversation is going to tip up to three and a half. So um, this is one of those films that I think inspired so many films later. Uh, it was prophetic, not only in our society, but also in what film would be. It, it, it was a place of um, young people coming together to create something very, very beautiful and coming to learn how to make something even more beautiful. So yeah, there's with the budget constraints and the time constraints and the people learning constraints, there is some wonkiness to the film, but this was a, a foundation for filmmaking. This was a foundation for artistry. This was a foundation for so many greats uh, that would come out of the film industry. And in Cronenberg, just from this film alone, helped launch Canada into a huge amount of artistry and a huge amount of just awesome imagery that we would not, I, I can't imagine a world without it. I'm so glad that he launched that. And so I guess for me, there's almost like a historical sense to this film that that resonates with me so much because it helped inspire so many and helped create so many great artists. Uh, it's 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 a huge moment in history. And I don't know what horror or what film would be without this film. There was it it was a starting point. It was a foundational starting point for so much. Uh, even though it is obviously not perfect, <laughs> as we as we talked about, um, the things I would like to mention: uh, the television in Videodrome was hard for them to figure out. They had to keep on taking these wooden sets, uh, wood, uh, TV sets, not sets of the movie, but wooden TV sets, and trying to figure out how to make shift this almost creature out of it, and. What ended up happening was the makeup artist and the people that were all working on these special effects, they were like, oh, we can't figure out how to do this right. And they end up going to the flooring people. And the flooring people were like, I know how we could possibly rig this and make it to where air pumps into different elements of this wooden TV set. And then it'll make the veins pop out and we can control it with a keyboard. And they all work together. This is collaborative effort. They were like, this is our budget. This is our time what are we going to do at and there's all these stressful moments and they made good art out of it which is huge to me it, it speaks to me because sometimes life is hard and you still just have to do and they did 
and it's beautiful in and of itself. Like they've never seen anything like it. And they came up with the idea of putting this rubber matting because uh, they couldn't figure out how to film screens. Screens, they make these little weird flickering lights, right? Uh, when you try to film it, it's wrong. So they had to have a projector inside the TV set with this rubber like cloth over it to project her mouth onto the screen and then have that voluptuousness to her lips that he then pushes his head into. These are all creative arguments that lasted for hours that ended up being beautiful. And um, it's the kind of stuff I get off on. <laughs> so it, it's one of those films where when I look in the history of it, maybe that's coloring how much I love it is the history of it and, and the things that they powered through and the things that they powered against, the things that weren't there that they made a thing happen. Uh, but also there's tons of awesome philosophical discussions to have that are so pertinent today. It is prophetic today. It is so pertinent today, especially with YouTube, especially with Oblivion talking about how we're all gonna have personas and uh, online, maybe not online, but <laughs> it, it seemed very prophetic when you watch it. Yeah, it didn't age well, but it kind of aged really well in some respects right so it, i don't know it's one of those beautiful beautiful films to me it probably always will be and i've also always had a crush on blondie so <laughs> maybe that's another part that's speaking through but um uh, i know i'm higher than all of you guys and i don't care i'm a four out of five i think this film is iconic i think it is absolutely imperative to anyone who is wanting to learn about the horror genre if you don't have this under your belt get it under your belt learn about the history of it study the books that inspired it uh and the, and the philosophers that inspired it and and just dive deep into it because i think it's pertinent today as it was yesterday and it's one of the most beautiful pieces of art that i have ever seen so please go watch it <laughs> and try to overlook some of the campiness and the comedy that is probably not purposeful <laughs> to it yeah in the chat we got a uh, four out of five as well shayra so we even got a a, a nine out of ten so of a, a 4.5 out of five with admitted cronenberg bias so uh, you are you are not alone in your your love of this film. Um, so thank you for joining us. Um, this may be our last live show or not. Let us know what you think. I've already called that out like multiple times. So fuck it, I'm not going to do it again. Um, but join us next week where we will be doing the Silence of the Lambs. Speaking of films that need to be in your horror film lexicon, The Silence of the Lambs. There's nothing more iconic uh, in the horror genre than Silence of the Lambs. So join us next week. Be sure to give us a like, share, subscribe, all of the things, all of the YouTube things, ring the stupid fucking bell thing. And uh, thank you for watching this episode of the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Have a good night.